and thank you so much for joining us today for our first event of 2022. I'm Nargis Bajopi and I'm an assistant professor at Johns Hopkins University's School of Advanced International Studies. Along with my colleague, Professor Vadi Nast, we'd like to welcome you to the SAIS Rethinking Iran Initiative at Johns Hopkins University. Given that Iran is currently the most sanctioned country in the world, as social scientists and academics who study Iran, we've been thinking about researching and writing on the impact of sanctions on Iranian society in its different components. So when Professor Nast and I saw uh, the news of Nicholas Mulder's new book, we were eager to invite him to our program for a discussion on the history of how US sanctions have developed into such a central component of US foreign policy that's today being increasingly wielded in different parts of the world, including the most recent discussions about implementing the quote unquote, mother of all sanctions on Russia. And in thinking of this event, there's no better scholar than Hopkins' own professor, um, Henry Farrell, to lead this conversation with all of us. Allow me to first introduce both of the scholars before I hand over the floor to them. Nicholas Mulder is an assistant professor of history at Cornell University. Professor Mulder works on European and international history from 1870 to the present. His research focuses on political, economic, and intellectual history with particular attention to the era of the world wars between 1914 and 1945. The Economic Weapon is his first book, which was just published, I believe, last week by Yale University Press. Um, I uh, had pre-ordered the book, so I was uh, happy and lucky enough to get it uh, as it came out last week and uh, just made my way through it uh, before today's event. Um, it's a really excellent book. I'm, I'm looking forward to the conversation that's going to happen today. I think those of you who focus on U.S. foreign policy will find this extremely useful. And for the academics and educators um, on the, the discussion with us today, there's a lot in here that can be pulled from for your classrooms and in discussions with your um, students. So I hope you all take a look at it very closely. Um, it's the first international history of the emergence of economic sanctions during the interwar period and the legacy of this tool. Professor Mulder's timely study casts an overdue light on why sanctions are widely considered a form of war and why their consequences are so tremendous. Henry Farrell is the Stravos Nyarkos Foundation Agora Institute Professor of International Affairs at Sice Johns Hopkins. He's a 2019 winner of the Frederick Schiedel Prize for Politics and Technology, and he's the editor-in-chief of the Monkey Cage blog at the Washington Post. Previously, he served as a professor of political science and international affairs at George Washington University, just uh, a few streets down from us in DC. Uh, he, is, he works on a variety of topics, including democracy, the politics of the internet, and international and comparative political economy. We're fortunate to have both of you joining us today. Now for our audience members, please feel free to post questions in the chat box on YouTube, and our team will collect these questions throughout the event and uh, we'll be able to pose them towards the tail end. Um, without further ado, Professors Mulder and Harold, the floor is yours. Wonderful. Well, I can't say how excited I am to uh, be able to be uh, part of this conversation about this uh, genuinely extraordinary book. I think that uh, for a book to be a classic, it's got to do two things. First of all, it has to be brilliant in and of itself. It has to uh, re-examine the world in ways that uh, change our understanding of it. And secondly, it also has to have good timing. It has to do so. It has to provide an understanding which is urgently relevant to understanding the uh, problems of today. I think that this book, uh, it's a really, really great book. It is uh, 
it is a kind of book you might not think that a history of the interwar period of economic uh, sanctions is going to be a page turner. This actually is a page turner. And it is um, sort of it has the opportunity, I think, of becoming a classic because it is coming at exactly the right moment, providing us with a pretty fundamental reassessment of how it is that sanctions worked during the pre uh, during the uh, pre-World War II period, and also providing us, I think, with some very important lessons which have been forgotten, uh, both parallels and differences, which I think are really, really fruitful to explore as we try to understand the role that sanctions play today in Iran and in other countries and the uh, crucial role that they have come to play in particular in United States policy as it seeks to address various uh, security uh, questions, security challenges as it understands it around the world. But I'd like to, uh, you know, rather than talking about how great the book is, I'd rather uh, get into the actual book itself and its arguments. So uh, the book begins, it talks about how uh, we saw in the late 19th century, we saw this very artificial division between uh, the uh, global economy and international warfare so that uh, we saw banks and businesses able to uh, continue their activities even when the countries they were based in were at war with each other. And then this changes in uh, World War One. So maybe if you could just talk about how that change happened, what it involved and what it meant. Yes, well, thanks very much to, uh, first of all, to the organizers uh, of the Rethinking Around Seminar for inviting me and thank you very much, Henry, for being in conversation today. So the starting point really for your question, this weird situation in the 19th century that I think we no longer even think about today, how extraordinary it was, that when states went to war with each other, it actually had very little effect on the global economy and things like trade, finance, private property, contract were preserved between them and could survive conflicts which were generally speaking very short. And that all changed after World War I and this book is basically a history of how that took place and how sanctions were the result of it. That um, all of a sudden these connections between countries became uh, deeply political and deeply crucial to trying uh, to manage world, world politics. But in the 19th century, interestingly, liberalism as a big emerging ideology and in this era of uh, laissez-faire economics and of advancing globalization, liberalism saw it as very normal and, and liberals saw it as very normal to uh, protect the integrity of the economy uh, from interference by states. They thought liberalism is about small government. It's about having a free and flourishing private economy. And the more we can basically contain war between countries, the more prosperous and ultimately peaceful uh, the world will be. And uh, in uh, the years before 1914, this kind of reached its peak. So you have these arguments by people like Norman Angel, uh, who uh, wrote this famous paean to interdependence in that period. And he said, you know, the world has now become so mutually interdependent, it would be really foolish to go to war. And in a sense, that was what they were hoping as well, that this protection of the private economy from the ravages of interstate rivalry would continue. And it's really the breakdown of that separation in World War I that opens the door to modern sanctions. And one of the interesting things you document is how some people who one might have thought would have been full-on liberals were among the most enthusiastic embracers of sanctions, so are of a blockade, so that this, in a sense, becomes this kind of almost dark shadow that liberal liberalism casts uh, throughout the uh, first half of the uh, 20th century. But then, of course, the blockades have... Uh, pretty substantial consequences during World War One, albeit uh, exaggerated consequences, according to your account. And then, of course, 
after World War I is over, uh, the logic continues in an important fashion. And this is when we begin to get into the world of sanctions, being separated from, uh, being separated from measures that are taken in uh, warfare. So how did the economic weapon, as you describe it, sanctions, how did it become a peacetime tool? So it emerges, like you said, from the blockade that the Allies impose on their opponents, on Germany, on Austria-Hungary, and on the Ottoman Empire during World War I. And it wasn't a, a kind of one-package implementation. They actually built the blockade very gradually and gently. And as they built it, they had to figure out what these globalizing links were, actually, that they had to sever in order to exert economic pressure. So it took quite a few years before the blockade was fully developed before it covered multiple realms, commodities, trade, finance, infrastructure, communications, etc. And once that was in place, actually, the Allies became more convinced that in the long run they would they would win. And people started to already speculate about what sort of order do we want to create after this war, and how are we going to prevent a war like this from breaking out again? And then, in, in that context, they found in the blockade the instrument that they thought. Would, uh, would be able to do that exactly that. So by basically lifting all of those techniques out of the realm of war and making it possible for a, a, an international organization, uh, Norman Angel has this very uh, um, striking phrase, an economic world state, right? So it gives you this sense of a, a kind of global governance institution. If you could equip that with the power to isolate countries, then you would actually have an instrument that could uh, get everyone to see sense and, and countries would no longer undertake any sort of aggression. So the paradox that liberals were really involved in as they gave the League of Nations the power to impose sanctions, because that is what that international organization ended up being, is that on the one hand, they wanted to stop war. They were genuine about that. They were very much on the side of peace and, and trying to preserve international stability, avoid something as terrible as World War I from ever happening again. But the way that they did it was to embrace one of the most brutal forms of total war that the war had produced, namely economic blockade. And they hoped actually that precisely because that instrument was so fearsome, um, it, it would actually help to, to preserve peace uh, in uh, the post-war period. So that was kind of the, the basic gambit uh, underlying the League of Nations and underlying the moment where this international order at the Versailles conference uh, took shape. So talk a little bit more about the League of Nations, because this plays a, a unusually large part in your book. And I think in some ways your book seeks to rescue the League of Nations from what another historian uh, described famously as the enormous condescension of posterity. And in particular here, I think the enormous condescension of uh, historians and of uh, political scientists and international relations scholars who have read and been uh, influenced by E.H. Carr's account in which the uh, League of Nations appears to be a more or less contemptible and completely ineffectual organization. And your sense of this is that this, in fact, was not true, that the uh, League of Nations was effective uh, to some degree, at least in deterring uh, uh, violence and interstate uh, interstate and sort of invasions. Could you talk a little bit about how the League of Nations came to assume that role and how it played that role in practice? Absolutely. So one of the interesting things about E.H. Uh, e. Carr, the, the you know, founding father uh, in many ways of international relations, is that he determined the narrative on the League of Nations with his book, The 20 Years Crisis. And I think it's had an enormous effect on the prevailing consensus 
about the interwar period that you see today in the American, but even in, I think, the, the international uh, foreign policy establishment. And uh, the basic foundations of realism in IR have seeped so deep into our thinking that it's very difficult for us to think of the League of Nations as anything other than a house of cards. Um, so I'm, I really follow in the wake of, uh, in this book, of a very uh, fruitful and productive new uh, group of historians in the last 15 years who've done a tremendous amount to rehabilitate the League of Nations. And they've shown how it actually really laid the foundations for a lot of global governance today. So it was already engaged in economic assistance, uh, you know, a, a predecessor organization to the IMF and the World Bank. It was doing all sorts of things from uh, uh, anti-people smuggling to drug control. Uh, it was involved in, in very uh, important uh, international uh, sort of standard setting. And uh, that was very uh, fruitful and, and useful for me in, in developing this book. But the one thing that no one had really seriously thought of challenging yet was this car assumption that in the realm of international security, the league was weak and it was a failure. And that impression, definitely, if you look at the 1930s, makes a lot of sense. And Carr makes a whole number of valid points in, in his own depiction. But when I actually went over the sources and I started to look at how Europeans and even people outside of Europe in Latin America, in Africa, in the United States spoke about the League in the 1920s and, and even way into the 1930s, they didn't think of it as a weak institution at all. And it's clear that actually the way we think of this today as multilateral institutions and nation states being very separate, that that's a bit of an artificial and a misleading way of thinking about it. Because in the interwar period, it was clear that, that when the multilateral organization of the League made a threat to impose sanctions, that behind it stood the most powerful countries, the most powerful liberal powers of the day, especially Britain and France, but even uh, in, in the early 1930s, hopefully also other countries, uh, the United States, it was hoped, would join these efforts and the Soviet Union, and also an important country that beca uh, actually became a member of the League of Nations in 1934, and it had a tremendous amount of resources and commodities, right, that Russia today still does, but back then also. Uh, the Soviet Union and the United States, given the commodities that they controlled, were crucial kind of flanking powers that would be able to give an international organization a very effective sanctions power. So having them in there would make a tremendous amount of difference. And this was something that everyone thought was uh, very close at hand. And there were many moves also in the 20s and 30s to make this a reality uh, consultation, even if they weren't part of the organization, they would join. And when you then start to actually look at what people in the interwar period thought, you realize they were pretty terrified that these sanctions were going to be used and that they would be hermetic and that they would effectively project a kind of force that the world had never really seen before. And one of the lessons that I think you uh, uh, provide here is that the reason that sanctions were uh, sometimes problematic was not because they were necessarily particularly weak, but instead because their uh, consequences were unpredictable and perhaps would have been expensive for, uh, say, for example, the city of London, which is, of course, just as New York today is the uh, center of US sanctions power, thanks to the dollar clearing system, the city of London played a uh, crucial role for financial sanctions back then. So, uh, so, so, uh, I think one of the interesting things that you suggest is that, in fact, the problem with sanctions wasn't that they were too weak. It was that they were strong, but they could be unpredictable and they could have all of these uh, knock-on unexpected consequences. Yes, and part of the reason for that is that sanctions had their origin in economic total war. And in order to be made into a legitimate peacetime instrument, 
there was quite a lot of you know political legitimating work that had to happen a lot of legal in ingenuity so international lawyers really broke their heads over how you can invent a new category for the use of force that makes it possible to coercively isolate an entire society without declaring war on it because that had basically been the norm in international law for the preceding centuries you could exert pretty ruthless pressure on civilian societies, but as long as you officially declared war, because then the country under pressure would also be able to fight back and you would be in an open conflict. And um, creating this ability to use this force, whereas not basically giving the advantage of belligerent rights to the country under pressure, that was a very new and a difficult thing to do. And they put a lot of create, uh, creativity and ingenuity into the effort to make it work. And uh, one of the uh, re reactions, of course, was that people didn't immediately accept that this was a valid new kind of gray area between war and peace. They associated economic pressure with war. And so in certain countries, you start to see in the 20s and 30s that the reaction is uh, to, to sanctions. The reaction is basically that uh, the one you would have uh, to an, a declaration of war as well. So it stimulates nationalism. And it has indeed uh, arguably a, a, a powerful effect, right? not at all uh, what you would expect from a weak instrument. It sort of overshoots uh, the targets. And I think that that's an important thing uh, to realize today, because, of course, for the West, the consequences and the, the costs of sanctions today oftentimes are relatively small. But for the countries on the receiving end, right, they are really tantamount to a very severe form of pressure. And... It's that difference and that gap, I think, in perceptions, you already start to see in the 20s and 30s. And there are big efforts by liberal internationalists to try and mend that gap to make sure that it becomes a universally legitimate practice. But it's very difficult to do that in the interwar period for one reason, because we're still in a world of colonial empires. So the countries using these sanctions have also been using gunboat diplomacy in the colonies. They've been using all sorts of coercive techniques and how are these sanctions that they're using actually any different from old fashioned imperialism? And this interestingly is one of the reasons that many Americans in the twenties and thirties felt deeply uncomfortable about sanctions. To them, sanctions were a bad, a kind of awful old world imperialism uh, in that, that, that reared its head again. And they thought they were a young nation, supported international law. They wanted to be better than that. And they thought this was a, an old style, old world European practice. So. You can see that these differences of perceptions played a big role then. And I think it's interesting today, right, that we uh, still haven't entirely closed that gap and, and, and the perceptions of sanctions in different parts of the world are understandably quite different. And it is, I think, in the long run, uh, an important factor uh, if, if people care about the legitimacy of our international order, uh, that you can use this instrument without such uh, animosity emerging from it. So one of the ways in which this, of course, emerges in the uh, interwar period is that you suggest that these fears of uh, sanctions, these fears, which are in some sense inspired by the living memory of World War I and what happened in World War I, melded together with a variety of different ideological factors, lead to uh, what in Nazi Germany is called the desire, and uh, forgive my uh, poor pronunciation, for blockade of festicide. In other words, for the uh, sort of the ability to uh, 
withstand blockades and how this is one of the precipitating factors that leads perhaps you know, not just to uh, nationalism, but to some degree to a desire to uh, sort of grab or control uh, as much territory as possible in order to make sure that um, sort of if uh, sanctions are issued against you, uh, that you have the opportunity to keep your econo economy going without having uh, crucial inputs denied to you. So I'm wondering if you could talk about the ways in which sanctions perhaps led to uh, unexpected security risks and security problems uh, because, you know, sort of, as you say, this uh, gap of sort of, uh, was perhaps in some ways more theoretical than practical in that of sort of, uh, the people who are at the receiving end didn't necessarily perceive the gap in the same way as the people who were uh, trying to hand it out. Yes. So what starts to happen in the 1930s is, is really interesting. And one other important thing here to mention, and I think that that's really relevant for everyone talking about sanctions today as well, is that we cannot really understand how sanctions are going to work uh, without looking at the global economic situation. And in this sense, economic history is really important because even when you use sanctions against similar kinds of political economies, similar kinds of state structures, the international economic situation might be very different at two uh, given moments. And as a result, I don't think you can expect the same results. And in the 1930s, the Great Depression was a massive confounding factor here. The Great Depression led to this collapse of, of world trade. It was a very severe blow to economic interdependence, but it didn't actually end interdependence. So I think it's sometimes overstated that people think the entire rise of autarky and economic nationalism in the 30s was all because of the Great Depression. And what I try and show in the book is that that's not entirely true. There were also political factors uh, that had to do with the security system that contributed to this further uh, search for self-sufficiency and sanctions were one of them. And the reason actually for that is that uh, Germany in World War I, as it was under blockade, had already provided countries with a kind of model for how you might, so to speak, button down the hatches and try and tough it out and withstand an economic siege. And Germany, particularly because of its advanced technology and uh, its, its powerful economy, uh, continued to have a hope uh, in the 30s and 40s, of course, that it was able to do this, but and it went much further under the Nazis. So that's indeed where you mentioned this uh, concept of blockade resilience, as the Germans called it, came in. And this was a really key concept for them. It's emblazoned all over newspapers. It's a really main goal of the Nazi regime, particularly after 1936, when they announced this four-year plan to become economically independent from the rest of the world. Um, not coincidentally, the four-year plan happens right when the League of Nations is actually using economic sanctions against Italy for Mussolini's attack on Abyssinia. And so in the 30s, this uh, very destabilizing dynamic ends up emerging. You already have a weakened world economy because of the Great Depression. Then you have countries that are expansionist and revisionist states trying to make claims to territories. The League and other liberal powers respond by threatening sanctions. But those countries now, because they are already moving towards economic nationalism, double down on this because it actually seems that there isn't that much to be gained by remaining in a liberal world economy, which is shrinking and collapsing anyway. So they start to make these much more assertive efforts uh, to achieve self-sufficiency. And this ultimately leads to a vicious spiral uh, between uh, sanctions and these autarky attempts. I call this blockade phobia in the book, but people at the time also refer to it as the nightmare of raw materials 
Um, they have all sorts of words in different languages for it, but it's a really striking phenomenon. And I think also a particularly interesting one and important one to pay attention to today, right? Because we're living in the aftermath of not just the 2008 global financial crash, but in the 2020 global recession because of COVID that we're only just emerging from and many parts of the world still haven't really emerged from it. So sanctions, if I can summarize it in, in a way, they're not just a lever or a tool that globalization provides they're also a force that when you start using it actually can change the structure of globalization and can uh, expand or in this case also contract and kind of make it more fragile. So returning to something you mentioned a minute ago, which is the near invisibility that uh, the consequences of sanctions sometimes have. And I was reminded um, when I was reading your book, you've got a very uh, a brutal quote uh, describing efforts to use some sort of uh, sanctions type, uh, sanctions and blockades to uh, to uh, get rid of a, a briefly uh, communist-led government in Hungary after World War One, and you have a policymaker saying. I admit it is most unpleasant to feel that women and children are starving in Hungary simply because we persist in the blockade, but I feel that it would be illogical to reverse our policy at the very moment when we must most need to maintain all possible Pacific means of pressure on our enemy. And uh, in some ways, you know, so I could see that language uh, you know, sort of being echoed in some of the debates perhaps today about Afghanistan and the Taliban. I could see, for example, you know, sort of the uh, Foundation for Defense of Democracies, the way that it thinks about uh, uh, the way that it thinks about sanctions against Iran. I don't think that uh, they they would express themselves in this kind of way. But this kind of um, sort of uh, invisible face of sanctions, you know, so where the uh, very severe consequences that it has. On on civilian populations uh, is, uh, is 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 um, sort of more or less um, sort of uh, systematically overlooked in a policy uh, today. You also have a very nice quote at the beginning where you say that uh, sanctions are not launched from the breach of a cannon, but instead they're launched from a mahogany desk. So I'm wondering if you could talk about how the bureaucratic routinization of sanctions and the invisibility of sanctions, you know, the fact that these are not observed directly visible war casualties, how that um, sort of has affected their uh, use back in the period that you look at and how that uh, continues to affect their use today. Yeah, so um, the attractiveness uh, of sanctions back then, I think, needs to be understood against the backdrop of the absolutely horrific slaughter of World War I. And when a war like that has taken place in which millions of people have died, uh, it becomes appealing to think about anything you can do to avoid sending so many people in uniform uh, to their deaths on the battlefield. And this became a powerful argument, particularly in liberal countries like Britain and France, to try and exert pressure on the enemy in a way that wouldn't put as many people um, and boots on the ground, so to speak, but also people in uniform at risk. And interestingly there, I think you can see a similarity to today where the expansion and the really rapid increase of sanctions in the last 10 years or so, uh, I would say particularly uh, since uh, 2008 and, and the Obama administration and continued under Trump and now under Biden, that expansion I think also needs to be seen against the backdrop of a diminishing domestic uh, enthusiasm for military intervention in the United States. 
And that quote that you mentioned happens in 1919, right up at the end of World War I, when the Allies are really trying quite hard to demobilize their countries. Britain has 3.5 million people in uniform. It has a crushing war debt, and it really wants to get back to business as usual, but it does still have to, in its own eyes, protect its interests abroad. And that is exactly where they hit on this blockade weapon and they start to continue using it after the war. They actually maintain large parts of the blockade for seven or eight months after the end of hostilities. They're doing something totally novel there, right? Because hitherto it had been part of war, you have to preserve a state of hostilities, but they want to have it both ways. They want to demobilize their army and declare war over for their own society, but continue to still have the benefits of exerting pressure. And I think that that temptation today is very obviously understandable, right? The uh, tremendous domestic political costs to launching military intervention in the world uh, is, I think, a big factor, not just in the US, but elsewhere too. Iraq and Afghanistan have told us that. And that certainly today is a major reason why sanctions appear to us a relatively low cost tool uh, for Western states to, to use. Um, yeah. Uh, another way in which we're perhaps going back to at least echoes with the past is that you, know, you describe in the book how it is that during the interwar period, the primary use of sanctions were as a means of deterring uh, uh, territorial aggression of one sort or another, one state invading another in order to grab territory. Uh, that for a long while seemed to be a solved problem. People talked about the territorial integrity norm in uh, international relations. Now, of course, we're in the middle of a crisis in uh, Ukraine where we're seeing effectively the uh, fear on the part of the United States and its allies that uh, Russia is going to invade Ukraine and sort of and uh, subject it uh, to some form of uh, more or less imperial hegemony. And we're seeing the deployment of sanctions in order to try, uh, or at least the threat of sanctions as a deterrent in order to try to prevent that from happening. So are there any useful lessons that we can learn today from the uh, effectiveness or uh, ineffectiveness uh, in some ways of sanctions during the interwar period when trying to uh, deter this kind of um, sort of pretty direct invasion by one state of another. So the current situation with the discussions of sanctions against Russia are in that sense, as you remark very rightly, really quite similar to the original intended goal of sanctions is to prevent interstate war. And under the League of Nations, it was not possible to use them for domestic political uh, goals. So it, it wasn't about human rights, or it wasn't really necessarily even about regime change, democracy or dictatorship. It was really about maintaining this territorial integrity norm. Um, I think it's difficult to draw direct lessons, other than that I can say that there's a lot of difficulties that become evident from the historical record and from historical experience. One of them is the problem of calibration. And I think that that is something that you can see right being played out before our very eyes right now. The last few weeks, a lot of back and forth over which sorts of sanctions are in, which are out of these packages. In the interwar period, and particularly in the early 30s, when Japan uh, invaded Manchuria, and then uh, when Italy also uh, invaded Ethiopia, it's interesting that particularly in the case of Italy, there was a very large military buildup that went on for months and months and months beforehand. And the League of Nations actually laid out a very uh, strong uh, and, and, and clear sanctions package in order to deter Mussolini from invading Ethiopia, which was a League member state. And there were two kind of camps really there among the policymakers who were designing those sanctions, uh, a kind of maximalist camp who thought that you should just cut off all commodities to Mussolini 
totally cripple the Italian economy, including uh, all the collateral damage to civilians that that would entail, and that only that would really work. Ultimately, however, the sanctions that they chose to impose were a more gradual form of sanctions, and they tried to target Italy's foreign exchange reserves. So they tried to basically drain uh, the, the coffers and drain the treasury and uh, hope that they could force Mussolini to a point where he would have to prioritize his own civilian economy over military expenditure and military adventures abroad. And it actually, as I, I try and show in the book, was a much more close run thing than most people assume. Uh, if certainly the Ethiopians had managed to hold out for a few more months, it's quite likely actually that Italy would have run out of money before they could have completed the conquest. And perhaps you would actually have talked about the League of Nations and its sanctions instrument quite differently. But uh, as it happened, uh, the Italians actually did have a bunch of luck. The United States also didn't join in the embargo. And these gradualist sanctions, rather than slowly sort of move Mussolini to reason, actually gave him the ability to try and uh, make a gamble for this rapid military conquest, which in, in that case um, he won. I don't really know, however, um, if that directly applies to the present situation. Uh, I think one of the uh, key differences to me, it seems, is that currently uh, there's uh, there's two questions uh, got, you know, in the, in the Russia-Ukraine situation. One is about the relation between Russia and NATO, and the other one is about the conflicts in Ukraine. And it seems that that was quite different from in the 30s when it really was about Italy wanting to expand its empire by direct territorial control. It seems today there are many more avenues for separating these issues and hopefully pursuing uh, diplomatic solutions on separate tracks and trying to disentangle these different demands. And uh, I'm still optimistic that we can find some sort of solution for that. Uh, but in that sense, I think, uh, you know, uh, we're actually fortunate that we do live in an age where uh, there isn't a fascist ideology and the deep, deep uh, blood and soil attachment to the possession of territory uh, necessarily uh, in play right now. And I think that the solution is actually uh, easier to reach today probably than it was then. Well, this is, uh, you've touched on one of the other really interesting elements of the book for me. And if there's one thing that I know and sort of makes historians more uncomfortable than being asked for direct policy lessons, it's being asked about uh, counterfactuals and alternative worlds. But there does seem to me to be an implicit alternative world in your suggestion that if things had gone slightly different in Ethiopia, if they'd applied sanctions in a different way, or if the uh, war and sort of the problems of the dry season that you described, if those had sort of been um, sort of more to the fore and made it more difficult for Mussolini to make advances, we would think about the uh, League of Nations and we would think about the uh, use of multilateral sanctions in a very different way than we would today. Um, if you develop that a little bit, what kind of world might we be living in if things had gone a little bit differently in that conflict and in the imposition of sanctions to try and stop it? Uh, that is a great uh, and then very um, uh, yeah uh, productive, but also difficult to answer question, I guess. Um, one thing I would say is that it would certainly have been a big uh, shot in the arm for liberal internationalists at the time. And it's interesting that in the end, even when sanctions in 1935 and 36 didn't save Ethiopia from invasion, they still thought that the League should continue and the liberal powers should continue to use sanctions, which they in fact did uh, against Japan and against Germany um, in 1938, 39, 40, and, and, and 41. So um, actually sanctions weren't abandoned then either. I think what was, uh, what was changed 
uh, as a result of, uh, of the war in Ethiopia was the perception that, that sanctions by themselves can stop these sorts of aggression, uh, these sorts of aggressive acts, and uh, that countries became much more prepared to now go uh, simply to open war. That was the only thing left uh, for them to be able to, to, to put a, a halt to this sort of behavior. Um, if they had worked, however, in, in uh, just to kind of get back to your to your counterfactual, I do think uh, it would have uh, certainly uh, thrown uh, quite a, a, a big wrench into uh, some of the the preparations for, uh, particularly by Germany and Japan, uh, what they were what, what they're thinking at that time. I think they would have potentially thought twice uh, about it. Uh, as it happened, the, the fact that Mussolini came away with it uh, effectively was a bigger blow, not the fact that they imposed sanctions and they didn't work, but simply that it uh, that it ended up uh, with a victory for him. Uh, it, it's worth going back to that period and looking at like the first few months, even after the sanctions were imposed back then, everyone who was a supporter of, of, of liberalism at that time thought that they had kind of won. They, they described it as a, a euphoric mood. The league had finally shown that it stood for something and they were confident that they were going to win, that Mussolini had basically fallen into this trap and he was bound to lose. And that's, I think, what we tend to forget, that these things can actually, uh, you know, uh, history is kind of uncertain and unpredictable, and it has these unintended consequences. Um, I'm not sure if that answers your, your counterfactual fully, but uh, I'll have to think more about it. Well, there's a little bit of, I, I think, events, my dear boy, events uh, about, about the answer, but I think also about our understanding of how this might have played out. I have one final question, because I know that we're going to have people who want to come in from the audience, which is, that in addition to the book, you wrote a piece for The Nation a couple of years ago, which was titled something like Why the Left Should Get Rid of Sanctions. Uh, but you know, so like many titles, it was a little misleading because your argument was more or less sanctions have been appalling. But then towards the end, you start to develop in a backhanded kind of way a case for why it is that the left might actually want to adopt sanctions for some specific purposes. And in a sense, getting back to what you said earlier about the ways that sanctions could restructure globalization, that perhaps sanctions, if they were applied to the ways that uh, kleptocratic rulers and others can hide money around the global financial system, that sanctions could have benefits. So I wonder, you know, and this is an ambiguity that goes through the book as well. On the one hand, talking about the horrific consequences of sanctions. On the other hand, observe the ways in which sanctions, if they were employed differently could have benefits for collective security. And of all people, you have uh, Joseph Schumpeter's spouse and sort of making the case for that, which uh, uh, was, I, I, you know, there are lots of interesting people po popping up in unexpected ways, Marcel Mouse as well in the uh, course of the story. But I'm wondering if you could talk more generally about the pros and cons of sanctions from a uh, policy perspective, and also from your particular perspective as somebody who is engaged to some degree in debates about what is happening now, as well as about uh, what happened uh, 70 and 80 years ago. Yes, so uh, one of the things in, in the last few years, I think, that is really interesting to pay attention to is that sanctions have become more granular in certain ways. And uh, you, can, you can see, right, that besides sanctions on individuals and on corporations, there's a much more interest in trying to target them quite specifically. I don't think uh, that that always takes uh, all the drawbacks off the table. The, the collateral uh, damage and, and the spillover effects from those measures can still be quite substantial. And I think, for example, we shouldn't have any illusions that if the very tough sanctions against Russia 
uh, because now were to, for example, be instantiated, that that would have a very severe effect on ordinary Russians. And uh, we'd effectively have ditched the idea of smart sanctions and, and we'd be back in the old uh, economic total pressure um, world. So um, one of the things though that I do think is interesting thinking about global governance, right, is that there are a whole bunch of other issues that uh, we, we need to address and that governments have committed themselves to, such as climate change, uh, more tax fairness, right? Uh, I'm Dutch and you're Irish, so we both, our countries both have a certain uh, role to play in the in the international, um, yeah, fiscal uh, space, so to speak. And I think that there, it's interesting that sanctions against companies are potentially very powerful. If there's one thing that the last few years have shown, it's that if you put sanctions on a bank or a corporation, they basically are forced to yield almost without exception within uh, days or, or weeks. Uh, and the reason for that's quite simple, right, is that every company or bank ultimately needs access to finance and a state can maintain that restriction for much longer than a company can stay solvent or liquid. Um, governments, however, even if they're small and, and relatively weak, uh, say North Korea or Syria today after a civil war, even though they're smaller nations, are actually able to still withstand pretty severe outside pressure for very prolonged periods of time, simply because they have a monopoly of power and violence over their own territory and they can really squeeze resources out of it. Companies don't have that. And so I actually think that companies are in, in some sense very vulnerable to this. And if you start to think about these issues of taxation and climate change, right, emissions are uh, in the end also very much a, a corporate and a private sector uh, uh, phenomenon. Uh, governments control some of it, but a large part of it is the global private sector. I think there are many interesting ways that very granular uh, sanctions there could be thought of. You know, anti-kleptocracy, anti-corruption is another area that, of course, there is more interest in that. But I think if you start to think of the possibilities of making sanctions very small and discreet, um, there are some uh, governance problems that do uh, make it quite interesting to, to take a further look at. Yeah. So I wonder whether the Biden administration is going to turn more and more towards this, because, of course, one of the benefits of sanctions for a administration is that you can apply sanction, many forms of sanctions. You can apply a designation of uh, foreign financial entities and other such things without um, sort of, uh, much um, sort of input necessarily from the uh, legislative branch. So this is something that there is a lot of unilateral power that the United States, uh, you know, that the current presidential administration might have. And it may be that frustrations will uh, lead to uh, them relying on this tool and perhaps relying this tool, uh, sometimes maybe to the exclusion of other tools, because this is the tool that they have the uh, easiest and most ready political access to. But uh, I'm sure that there are people uh, from the audience who want to get in. And I know that we have a moderator who is looking at the queue. So uh, if there are uh, questions, uh, let's see what they are. And I will uh, convey them to Nick. Um, sure, they've been, um, we've been uh, monitoring them as they pop up. So our team has been sending them over. One um, person writes, I teach at a law school course on sanctions and expert controls, and I look forward to reading the book. But can you please describe how the book addresses OFAC's predecessor, the foreign funds control? Yeah, that, uh, that's a wonderful question, actually. Uh, so uh, for those other people who uh, aren't uh, you know, specialists on the, the minutiae of American economic statecraft, foreign funds control, the predecessor of the Office of Foreign Asset Control, was the first agency in the U.S. government that began to use the freezing of assets as an instrument. Um, so the um, uh, foreign funds control is a quite, quite interesting uh, 
uh, institution in many ways, because it, it's a really direct consequence of the Nazi invasion of Western Europe. And the United States in, in the late 30s and early 40s is almost dragged into uh, the World War II and also the use of sanctions uh, against its own will to some degree. And uh, there are some policymakers who have already been advocating for them, but there's still quite a lot of political resistance from Congress to doing so. But the moment actually when there's a really big breakthrough is when uh, the Nazi armies go into Norway and Denmark in April 1940, right before they conquer much of uh, Western Europe more generally. And that actually helps a lot of Norwegian and Danish American voters in the Midwest, which is a stronghold actually of neutralism and of non-interventionism in Congress to give support for tougher American government action against the Nazis. And at that point, Roosevelt allows Morgenthau, the, the Treasury Secretary, to create this new office called Foreign Funds Control. And what they do is that they actually sequester the foreign assets of these small European states, also then of Czechoslovakia. And then as the Nazi armies invade and, and spread around Europe of all the, the countries that they occupy, they take these assets temporarily into U.S. hands, and they're basically a kind of custodian function uh, so that the Nazis cannot exploit the overseas economic wealth, uh, the, the savings these countries have in the United States. And after uh, World War II, I think it's in uh, the Korean War, foreign funds control then is expanded into, into OFAC. So that's kind of a short uh, story. Great, thank you. We have another question um, from an audience member that says, if sanctions and military war are unacceptable, how do we ensure that quote unquote dangerous, dangerous countries join the world community safely? Um, that's, a, that's a very good and, and big question. So, I mean, there's many ways I think to, to address that. One thing that is a lot on my mind these days is, is what I was talking uh, to Henry about earlier is the fragility of globalization. I think we are in a moment where uh, a combination of trade wars, combination of uh, pandemic, uh, rising nationalism is leading to a lot of distrust already among countries. And I think one of the key things is to try and think about how we can build new institutions, institutions that kind of reflect the economic and political uh, power uh, balance of, of the 21st century, and that can make countries stakeholders in, in this new uh, economic reality, particularly. Uh, there's been quite a lot of institutional collapse uh, to some degree or erosion uh, of organizations. The World Trade Organization right now seems much less powerful uh, than it was, say, you know, 20, 25 years ago. Uh, there's a lot of government actions that have made old international institutions seem kind of relatively um, um, yeah, weak. And I guess the trick is to try and figure out if we can find new fora where we can uh, have countries be uh, part of a, of a kind of stability enhancing uh, coalition. And uh, that I think will necessarily have to cross some ideological divides in the world. But I think ultimately that maybe the ideological differences will also become a bit smaller uh, if we get uh, su such a project off the ground. Great, thank you. Th those are the questions for now from the audience. So um, I'll turn it back over to um, Henry or my colleague, um, Betty Nass, if they have the follow-up questions. So I, I have one follow-up question, which is one of the interesting uh, tracks of the book is 
as I, as I say, you talk a lot about how liberals think about the world and how this shapes the ways in which sanctions are applied. And one of the results of that is that people think are used to think about uh, sanctions in terms of an incentive model of human behavior, which is really based upon the uh, notion that if you deny people access to these uh, to the world market, sooner or later they are going to fold. And uh, you describe how uh, Angel is one of the people who pushes this. There are various other people who push similar arguments at various points in the book. So obviously that doesn't in fact uh, apply particularly well. Uh, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the circumstances under which people behave in ways that are not predictable on a crude self-interest understanding and what kinds of consequences that has for the actual efficacy of sanctions when applied to countries. Yeah, so the interesting thing about the interwar period is that even the people who were very strong sanctionists, so advocates of sanctions, were actually quite worried that there might also be a kind of backfiring possibility in their use of this instrument. And Angel himself, already in 1915, he's actually one of the first to warn that if they expand this economic world state, if they create this power of economic blockading uh, that uh, can, can target potentially any country, one of the consequences might be, he says, that the, there will be a competition for national self-sufficingness. So basically a kind of fragmentation where all countries will try and protect themselves by uh, drawing up the drawbridges and, uh, and trying to become uh, autarkic. And that's one uh, a possibility that even the liberals are already quite worried about. You see many people in the League of Nations express similar concerns. And uh, by the 1930s, this is actually a very common analysis. And it's quite interesting that I think it's been forgotten uh, in uh, most histories of, of the 1930s that people were warning about this. So the book tries to kind of assess some of those claims and, and, and bring them back to their, their prominence in the debates. Um, but more broadly speaking, I guess the main thing that uh, I've really concluded and, and learned also from, from working on, on this issue for a long time now is that it's very important to go beyond, like what you said, these utility-based models, interest matrices, or uh, a, a basic kind of uh, incentive-shaped uh, uh, model of human behavior, people are also motivated by very other uh, factors, you know, uh, ideological, cultural, political values. Uh, they have memories. They, they come from a particular place with a particular outlook, uh, both the people suffering from sanctions and the policymakers imposing them. And that has important effects. So I actually think that the role of ideas and culture ultimately is something that at the very end uh, of the analysis, I, I'm quite uh, struck by how important that is. And particularly because actions in the past don't just disappear. It's not that every new time you impose sanctions, you're in a totally fresh new incentive situation. You already have to deal with the consequences of your past actions. And in that sense, I think it's really worth talking about these unintended consequences. That's not an excuse for inaction, right? Because when you become too fearful of unintended consequences, you become totally paralyzed and you can't do anything anymore. But I think it is a, a lesson that we should really proceed with caution and that we should try and have a, a longer view, take a much longer view of the history of US-Iranian relations, US-Russian relations, uh, US-North Korean, right? US-Venezuelan relations. When we talk about sanctions, these are not things that uh, we just started to use Yesterday, they feed into the existing outlook between these countries. Uh, and so we need to involve a much broader, I think, set of people and experts also in the discussions of these sanctions, not just um, people 
uh, at the treasury uh, or, or lawyers who can find the legal details, but also actually people with really relevant area expertise and, and, and a more historical, I think, view uh, of these situations. Well, this is certainly something that the uh, Rethinking Iran project has been very directly to the fore in uh, doing, is really looking at how things have proceeded differently in Iran than perhaps uh, many U.S. policymakers uh, understand. So I'm wondering maybe if Nargis or Valley would like to talk briefly to that and how that fits into this uh, broader debate. Go ahead, Nargis. No, I, I, well, if I may actually ask a question, which it does come from uh, our experience with Iran, um, you know, the, the, uh, and, and I don't know how, how you reflect that back, back on history and the cases you looked at, is, is how does secession of hostilities or if, if sanctions or war by other means happen? In other words, one of the issues that increasingly even we're seeing it play out in Vienna is how do sanctions get lifted? And, and it seems to be, you know, it's this sort of a stickiness to what it's easier, easy, more easily imposed than lifted. And, and, and I'm wondering how do you think that actually shapes uh, the way in which it, 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 it has efficacy or, or the way in which it could be imposed or uh, uh, shape policy going forward? Yeah, a great question. And, uh, and it's very true, right? So that's again, I think this, this phenomenon that you see that sanctions are not just a, a lever that the state can impose and lift, and, and then the situation is back uh, as, as it was before, uh, they, they change the structure of globalization. And in this case, they, they change something quite profound in the way that companies do business, that the private sector uh, that, that actually sustains the interdependence between countries operates and, and calculates risks also. So I think one of the things that countries can definitely do and governments is to try and offset some of that stickiness, offset that long-term kind of the compliance overhang uh, by trying to take more positive measures. And uh, as Fandira Batmangalij and I have, have written in the past about this, that uh, one of the things that we should talk about is a kind of sanctions reconstruction agenda, uh, you know, not just lifting restrictions, but also sweetening the deal perhaps by giving certain additional uh, multilateral financial support, uh, very much in a similar way to how we would deal with natural disasters or the aftermath of the war, right? Sanctions are economic war, and after a war, there's a reconstruction period. And you cannot just lift restrictions and expect an economy that's been battered by these measures for many years to immediately regain its former vitality. So the, I think if we deal with the aftermath of sanctions, the way we would deal with financing post-conflict situations, uh, that might be a, a, a useful way maybe of, uh, of changing the debate. Very interesting. Thank you. Um, thank you so much. The, the, did you want to say something? No, no, go ahead. Go ahead, please. Okay. The, um, just sort of uh, picking up off of these conversations and um, Nicholas, your point about you know, sanctions uh, end up fundamentally altering globalization. One of the, I, I've been studying sanctions in Iran, but also in Cuba and Venezuela and, and the, the linkage between these three countries and how they actually learn from uh, learn from the sanctions policies on one another, compare notes, compare notes about how you break sanctions, um, and also are very much at the forefront of um, pushing conversations uh, and ideas about how you move away from a U.S. dominant uh, dollar economy. Um, and, you know, questions of uh, cryptocurrencies, questions of doing trade and, and, and things other than the dollar. Um, and so I just, we have a, a few minutes left before the hour is up and I would love to hear your, it, it kind of departs from your book, but I would love to hear your 
uh, thoughts about um, these kinds of things that are constantly being put forward by places like China, Russia. I mean, you know, both China and Russia have been talking about if the U.S. continues to impose harsh sanctions on them, they would start to move uh, and are actively thinking about uh, whether these will pan out or not is another question. But even actively thinking about uh, how to do uh, uh, trade in the uh, in, in other currencies, and so um, how does that both play out um, as far as uh, the dominance of whether it was the British pound beforehand or the U.S. dollar today, and kind of looking forward. Um, as sanctions are used so widely, uh, there there is this sense that um, maybe the world economy needs to look in different ways, and that can be an unintended potential consequence of uh, the overuse of sanctions. Yeah, I, I, I think you're very right. And, and those links between the countries on the receiving end of sanctions are, are very interesting to observe. Um, my, my sense is so far that the worry you sometimes hear about the overuse of sanctions leading to a diminishing of the reserve status of the dollar are probably still somewhat premature, but the risk is there. Uh, but indeed, right, a large part of the demand for the dollar is again sustained by the private sector. So it's not entirely the decisions of governments that influence it. That being said, these governments only need to protect their immediate state-controlled, state-owned enterprises and, and, and regime interests. So they don't necessarily need the entire private sector uh, to switch either. And uh, I do think one other interesting phenomenon to look at is uh, trade balances. And here, again, economic history is kind of useful. So what's striking about the United States is that it itself has this currency used very widely, but its currency is far more internationalized than the actual trade presence of the American economy. And that really accounts for, I think, another reason why America is uniquely able to use sanctions. European countries are now sort of, you know, begrudgingly and blatantly using sanctions a bit more, but the fact of the matter is they just don't really have the appropriate political economy to use them because they depend so much on, on exports. So it, it, you reach a point where you start to cut into your own export earnings very, very quickly. The same goes for many East Asian economies. And for the United States, the problem, I think, is less that they're going to lose the reserve status of the dollar than the fact that most of their allies in Europe and East Asia are extremely trade dependent economies. So they will actually, there's a continuous, I think, uh, problem and a dilemma between preserving the economic prosperity of your allies and using sanctions. And I think actually that that uh, dilemma will, will remain with us. So I think it's less about the dollar than about the, the kind of current account politics uh, or the politics of the balance of payments. Uh, yeah. Thank you so much. Um, we're hitting the hour. Um, I really wanted to, to both thank um, um, Nicholas Mulder and, and Henry Farrell for this really great uh, conversation. Um, thank you so much for your excellent book. Um, I uh, look forward to, to delving more into detail and in parts of it and really encourage everyone who's watching to, to order it and to get the book and, and read it. Um, there's so much that, we'll, that we can learn from this. Um, and especially, uh, unfortunately, as sanctions become bigger and bigger issues around the world.